Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Are you ready? I think so. Hello. Hello, is it me you're looking for? I don't want to start this episode this way. <laughs> A weird serenade. <laughs> so you want me to cut that? I don't... I, I mean, now you have to leave it in, right? <laughs> I know. I was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do, so... um so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about just a welcome? Welcome to Slayhouse Presents. That's too easy. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, guy. <laughs> um, all right, yeah. Welcome to Slayhouse Presents. This is Jeremy trying to make things entertaining, but God forbid. <laughs> and and <laughs> with me as always, or most of the time at least, is Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> most of the but the grand like ninety eight percent of the time. <laughs> Grand majority of the time. Uh, and today we are continuing our little discussion on, on craft and yeah. on the craft of fiction. And we're not talking mac and cheese over here. Nah. We're talking C-R-A-F-T. I almost forgot how to spell craft for yeah. a moment. And we're not talking the owners of the Patriots. We're talking... <laughs> Wait, What? It's Kraft. Robert Kraft is the owner of the. Oh, <laughs> see, I wouldn't. I didn't know. But he might also be the the like the that maybe where he it's K R A F T. So maybe he is the like the, the Kraft, Kraft family. Guy. So it's mac and cheese, the Patriots, mac yeah. and cheese, and the Patriots. Can't What's more American? What's more American than that? <laughs> um, <laughs> we're talking C R A F T. We're talking. C-R-A-F-T, we're talking everybody. pinkies up Kraft. Pinkies up Kraft. That's right. So. <laughs> So last time we talked a little bit about um, theme and literary conventions. Yeah, that's right. And kind of gave you guys some good insight into that as you're kind of planning your stories, kind of know what to look for. Today we're going to be talking about narrative structure. And the first thing I think I want to talk about are a couple of fun words. I just love saying them. (laughs) Mimesis. Mimesis. Not mimosas. Not mimosas. That's what you drink while you're writing. (laughs) Remember, everybody, write drunk and sober. <laughs> right. So you drink your mimosas okay, so while you're thinking about mimesis. This is kind of funny and, and a little off the off the beaten trail here. Uh, there was recently a study that came out that said that uh, marijuana does not actually increase your, your creativity, but it does increase the amount of confidence you have in your own creativity. Sure, I'll buy So, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of... Uh, Kind of interesting. I like the little cartoon for marijuana too. That was like, um, like you're less inclined to like run the re- the red stop sign if you're on marijuana. You just sit there and wait for it to change. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, good um, old pot. So that's that's a uh, none of this is mimesis. Again, that's <laughs> that's our tangent. Getting off of <laughs> that's our sole tangent this episode. <laughs> it's not going to be our sole only tangent. <laughs> tangent. No, no, we're going way off the rails. Oh well, I um, meant our our s o u l tangent. Oh, soul our sole tangent. tangent. Yeah, that's right. Well, no, that comes with our next word. <laughs> the, can I tell my joke? Do you think we'll offend people if I tell my it's joke? All, every joke you tell is offensive. <laughs> so go for it. So. This isn't so uh, as opposed to mimesis. It's not just what the Romans said to Christ. 
We have diegesis. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, bye, Christians. It was fun talking to y'all. Oh, man. For those of you that are still left we after lost everything my, else, we... We lost my parents as an audience. <laughs> uh, we didn't lose them when we were bad-mouthing uh, Joel Osteen way back when, like the second episode. I'm pretty sure my parents don't listen because they don't like to hear me swear. <laughs> I don't like to hear you swear either. Oh, well, nobody does. <clears throat> okay, so what does mimesis and diegesis mean? That is a great question. Not what do they ones. mean? They mean whatever you want them to mean. <laughs> Show's over. Bye, <laughs> I'm folks. Pretty, I'm pretty sure that's not real. <laughs> Words have meaning. So mimesis, uh, some questions that we ask about and think about when we think about mimesis is like what fiction should represent and how it should mirror. In fact, if you look at the root word of mimesis, it kind of mm-hmm. sounds like the root word of mimic. Yeah. It's because it's the same it's, root word. It, it starts the same way, yeah. <laughs> so mimesis is really concerned with the representation of fiction as close to truth and reality. And and, and right. that doesn't mean, like, we don't have to take that to literal terms and be like, oh, well, then we can't write genre fiction. No, it's just yeah. saying we want it. And I've got a really good example to, to show the difference in this in a second, but I want to give the definitions out. So the mimesis can still apply to, to genre fiction. It's just, it's... Mm-hmm. Another mm-hmm. way to look at this is like showing versus telling. And I was going to say when we come to uh, this idea of like show don't tell, yeah. right? The, the the old adage. I think that what we're really talking about is is mimesis is the show, yep. and diegesis is the tell. Yes. Um, so a a good little example that I wrote when I when I thought about this was mimesis or diegesis would be something like in your work saying she is mad whereas mm-hmm, mimesis mm-hmm. would be like her face reddened and she slammed her fist on the table mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's a much better way of just you know we can infer the fact that she's angry from, mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. these actions um but uh but we we don't have to just slap the reader over the head with it we mm-hmm, can actually mm-hmm. show them and the, and the readers appreciate that they want that stuff mm-hmm. more yeah so you know you can still do this in genre. Fi- in fact, genre fiction is a great place to do this because I don't want you to tell me that somebody is scared. Show me what fucking scared looks like on this person. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. You know, do they do the classic 1940s bite the fist in the mouth kind of thing, or you know, the <laughs> <laughs> all of my characters are going to do that now. All of my characters are going to be biting fists, and then then they get their fist stuck in their mouth. Um, that was chapter two, by the way. <laughs> that was, yeah. yeah. There was a whole chapter based on one yeah, guy. Yeah, just like, choking on so, his fist. He got so scared. He stuck his fist in his mouth, and then yeah. he couldn't get it out. And that's he couldn't get chapter. it out. That's and how he died. The dentist and the maxillofacial surgeon, and it was just... It was, it was a rough day for that guy. It was. It was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so if you if you want to sound really smart, instead of saying, like, show versus tell, mimesis and diegesis. Yeah. So I have a question as a, a writer and a reader. I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of pitch this to you, right? So I know, I know we always box. talk about, uh, you know, show, don't tell. But, but I do think that diegesis has its place in storytelling. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, you know, what are some examples of like maybe some situations where diegesis is the road to go as opposed to mimesis. It's very fun, uh, interesting that you say that because on the back of our little notes, we don't really have a script. We have like the notes that I teach from and I teach this in class. <laughs> right, right. I have a diagram that I'm going to try and describe. And the diagram... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Welcome to NPR people. Today we're going to we're describe going to diagrams, diagrams to you. To you. <laughs> no, but I think the examples that are listed within this little diagram really show when diegesis would actually work and 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 be something that you would mm-hmm, you could mm-hmm, lean toward. Mm-hmm. I think when you hear the examples of what these um, of what kind of constitutes as more diegetic narration yeah. or or whatever, um, I think you'll you'll kind of understand when, you know, it's it's not that there isn't a place for it. It's like you want to lend yourself towards mimesis as much as possible. Right. And I've read some, like, Ramsey Campbell, and I've read some um, uh, The Devil's Own Work by Alan Judd um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is a really good example of just total mimetic storytelling mm. where you have to, you are straight in the character's mind, you are being driven through this story um, as much as you are like a part of the character and so you don't get the omniscient narrator telling you this is where yeah. we are and this is what's happening I feel here's like, the backstory I feel like Faulkner does that a lot too Faulkner does it a lot too yeah, yeah. and and so there there can be a place for it um, mm-hmm. I think what we find is you know because some of that can be very off-putting to the reader you know they get mm. into that story and it's mm-hmm. like what the hell is going on I don't right. know so there are times when carefully placed diegetic moments mm-hmm. can help ground the reader in the story without mm-hmm. taking them out of the story too much right and still kind of finding that balance yeah and so that's kind of the those areas is what I, I want to talk I, about I almost find diegesis uh, a lot in like exposition yeah right yeah. like well, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty useful tool for for kind of explaining some status quo stuff you know get, yeah. getting your reader kind of caught up to the moment uh, but yeah, let's look over. Let's like, look over them because uh, you've got you know quite a few examples of like when should we use yeah. diegesis or when is it most commonly used and then when is mimesis used? So a lot of times it's when the narrator is most visible, right? That's when uh-huh. diegesis is normally used. Right. So if you have the narrator's representation of actions, for example, like say character ac- actions or events caused by inanimate agents who are not usually characters. Okay. Um, What's an example of that? Oh, shit. I knew you'd ask me that. <laughs> um, like uh, describing, I don't know, like like the solar eclipse over a town or something. Sure. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you that know, makes sense, right? You're you're explaining the the environment or you know something like that, sure. Or your character's perceptions of anything like this. So your character's mm-hmm, actions, like mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. he he slammed the door, and you know maybe you're describing a fight scene or something. These are diegetic. Mm-hmm, you know, he body mm-hmm. slammed the guy into the ground. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, She Hulk drop kicked her her cousin. That's you know. my favorite example so far. <laughs> drop kicked her cousin. I don't know. I'm, Let's hope it's the Hulk one. And not the other one, who's just like a plain weirdo. <laughs> Man, that would be devastating, isn't it? Kick, it? Yeah. Um, she just comes in. She's like, hey, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Bob's dead. So any anything where the narrator is kind of giving us and telling us what to think or kind of showing us, you know, that's, that's very diegetic. Um, a little bit less diegetic, um, but the still based in, in narration, narration um, the narrator, when they represent discourse, like speech mm, and mm-hmm, thought, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you got the narrator saying he started to think about X. Right, and, right, right, right. You know, right. Or, um, the any kind of syntactical anom- anomalies. You know, anytime mm. we try and you know we huck fin it and try and like <laughs> break into uh, all types of dialects and stuff. That's something you know. Okay. That that I think is very diegetic. Um, 
anytime we try to to make either dialogue pro or prose, um, like not just a false start, but also interruptions, kind of breaks. Um, in in the, in, the, in the method of storytelling, so, yeah. you know, kind of like relating some inf- again, relating information, but then you're right. you're like, and here's a little bit of additional yeah. information about the information. And this these are all examples of of diegetic kind of narration or the right. diegetic leaning towards the diegetic spectrum. And the thing, like I said, these you know we want to lean towards mimesis as much as possible, but sometimes you cannot escape this. It's you mm-hmm. you just mm-hmm. don't want to go to the the alternative and have everything diegetic. Like everything, <laughs> like you know, but because that right, <clears throat> then you're you're taking out a lot of the human element of of the story. Right, you're you're not really allowing your character's perspective, you know, to kind of bleed into uh, uh, the story. It's 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 too divorced from right. what's happening. Um, another example. This is again kind of middle middle of the road. Um, so indirect discourse and indirect thought. Um, uh, so some examples I have here, like indirect discourse would be like he asked his teacher for help instead of actually mm. letting us hear the words coming out of the mouth. You know, we have yeah. the, the narrator yeah, yeah. telling us. And and that's useful at times. You know, it, it would be very tedious every time your characters ran into each other for them to explain exactly everything they'd been through. Do you want to – and not only that, but do you want to read small talk? No, probably not. Hey, not so what's much. What's going on? Nothing yeah. much. Uh, what do you call him for? Uh, just seeing what you're up to. How's like, your mom? No, you can you can use indirect discourse and like skip all that shit. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and that is a bit diegetic. But again, we're kind of in the middle ground here between yeah. diegesis and, and you gotta you gotta understand the 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 economy of your storytelling. Right, right, exactly. How much time are you spending on one thing over another? Direct discourse is very very much closer to mimesis. Um, mm-hmm, when we mm-hmm. have these conversations, these these characters talking, when you can actually get to the meat of the thing, and I'm going to talk about dialogue and. And that kind of indirect discourse yeah. later on. Yeah, that's another. Um, that's a. That's another craft it's uh, a, it's episode. Another, right? It's another podcast. It's episode. All, it's a whole different episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but 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 it is. It's it's leaning more towards mimesis because we can hear that, and it's something that's representing the real mm-hmm, world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, even even dialogue, right? Like dialogue mm-hmm. would be uh, mimetic when it, it doesn't have a whole lot of interruptions, right? right. And those tags, I I find myself. Uh, you know, frequently kind of wondering what what is the use of your dialogue tag in your writing, right? Mm-hmm. And and when should you, you know, be offering tags or interruptions or, you know, what have you. Um, and I think that for a lot of dialogue, you probably don't need as many tags. So of all the problems that I have with Michael Crichton's The Lost World, rest in peace, Mike. <laughs> um <laughs> picking on the guy he of the lost world the lo- yeah the, lo- the, the, sequel, se- the, the sequel, sequel to, to Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park yeah he wrote it um he wrote it because Jurassic Park made a shit ton of money at the theater with you know Steven Spielberg oh yeah movie. of course and they were like hey do you want to write a sequel and he's like sure, sure. <laughs> and <laughs> who doesn't like money <laughs> who doesn't like money so they're like oh what well let me so I think I got I don't know if I've told this story before so I'm gonna tell it real quick so <laughs> the end of Jurassic Park varies from the end of the movie right the end of the <laughs> yeah book. yeah yeah that's right yeah so Ian Malcolm the guy played by yeah, Jeff Goldblum he in the gets movie, eaten by velociraptors he gets eaten by velociraptors they break in through the ceiling yeah they kill him yeah like legit kill him yeah yeah and 
when they came to him for the sequel, they're like, we want you to write a sequel to Jurassic Park, your book. And he's like, okay. And they're like, we wanted to start Ian Malcolm because he was such a breakout character. <laughs> right, right. So Just the gold. book opens with him like spending some time in a South American <laughs> hospital and walking with a limp. And I'm like, damn, they must have some good medicine. <laughs> In Brazil. <laughs> it's that frog DNA. <laughs> yeah, the frog DNA from, from the cloning of experiments on Jurassic Park. But there is, and I'm going to have the, like, talking about tags and beats and the differences between them, of course, is all going to come in that episode yeah. about dialogue. But the, the thing that makes me think about this is he had a whole, like, two pages of dialogue between Ian Malcolm's character and the character that was played by Julianne Moore in The Lost World. Sure. I don't remember the character's name. Who knows? But every line... In these two pages of nothing but dialogue was dialogue. He said dialogue. She said dialogue. He said dialogue. She said. You know. And I'm you know like, who I else did it? I can follow who's saying. You know what. who else does that? Like <laughs> like just a ton. J.K. Rowling. Yeah, yeah. She's terrible about the 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 dialogue beats or or tags or whatever you call them. Like like just insufferable. Yeah. It's so much of it. it like it, it makes my eyes just kind of gloss over when I try to read some of her dialogue. We'll go into more detail about this when it comes to dialogue, but just for right now, people can follow who's saying what. You know, I think it's really interesting, though, that that you bring up, um, you know, this this notion of diegesis. And, like, I actually think that uh, Michael Crichton is an example of a very diegetic writer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, So much of his stuff relies heavily on his narrator explaining to you all of the weird, you know, yeah. uh, technological and advancements. I mean, I remember the Andromeda strain. Mm-hmm. There are like whole chapters of it, and they're like, "Let me just it describe to you this in this institution, yeah. right? Let let me explain the different floors of this building." Uh, and a lot of that is necessary because it's kind of like if you want to understand the action of. The, the, like the real drama of the story, you have to understand why all of these technical systems or how they work, which is kind of wild because um, it's it's so much info dumping on your head. And then it, yeah. it feels like you'll get like a chapter and a half of info dump and then like a half chapter <laughs> of character interaction. And then it goes back to the info dumping. Like super popular 90s big authors were all, I think, like, criminal of this like like john, john grisham has whole chapters oh my god of the firm, like <laughs> listing like talking about you know lawyer speak and stuff and it's like we don't need to fucking yeah, know yeah, this yeah, yeah. tom clancy goes yeah, and yeah. researches naval like spec war chuck, stuff chuck hogan's the same way man. Chuck, i was gonna say chuck hogan, chuck hogan you and yeah. i both read the strain yeah we did it's like here's how an airplane 747 it works so, I, I i tapped out i was like i can't i can't do it yeah tom clancy the the, the hunt for red october oh my gosh it's a, it's a, it's, it's a all diegetic it is it's a <laughs> It is. When I was in Let the Navy, me explain <laughs> to you how all of these spycraft things work. Here's what's wild. He just went to like a naval museum, like a naval library, and like <laughs> looked this shit up. Like I remember in the Navy ROTC, they were like they put me under like special clearance, like uh-huh. like so I wasn't like top secret or anything, but I did have like special clearance, which means when I served on some like some ships and like when I did that overseas tour. Uh-huh. Um, 
if somebody like if you were if I knew you back then and you were like, hey Jeremy, what was that ship like? Give me the details on it. I'd be like, I can't tell you because that's part of my clearance. All right, right? yeah. So um, I'd be like, I can't tell you, but you can go read a fucking Tom Clancy novel and he can tell you. <laughs> right, right, or right, you right. can go to the Naval Library and check out a book and look <laughs> at it yourself. But I just can't personally <laughs> tell you. Just so, read a Tom Clancy novel. He's got all our secrets. He does, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's taught at, like, naval institutions. Like, they teach. Like, oh, you know what? Like, nothing surprises me about that, though. <laughs> nothing surprises me. Uh, we James, love you, Tom. James Patterson is another of James these, pa- like, yes. extraordinarily diegetic writers, yeah. right? Yeah. I feel like that's all of James Patterson's master class is, like, don't, don't, you know, you've always heard show, don't tell. I want you you to tell tell, everything. Tell it all. (laughs) But make your chapters two pages long. (laughs) (laughs) It's a 300-page book, but it's got 400 chapters. (laughs) Um, And then the final idea of mimesis is getting all of that interruption and even, like, dialogue tags and stuff out of the way and just do that free free direct discourse and just – That'd Just a like, lot of they're, – they're talking to each other. Yep. I feel like a really good mimetic writer is uh, someone like Dash Hammett, right? Yeah. Like uh, some of the way that he structures dialogue because so much of, of what they talk about, it, it, there's there's no moment that he stops to kind of like explain – how they're feeling or something like that. You know, it, it's just they, they talk to each other and the, the character gleans information from that conversation and doesn't even tell you what yep. it was that he gleaned, yep. right? He's staying very much in the character's head when he does that. Yes, um, yeah. And that's what I liked about Alan Judd's. I mean, some people are turned off by that heavy mimetic kind of storytelling. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I liked it. I liked uh, The Devil's Own Work. I thought it was uh-huh. beautifully written. Um what was another one that I've read just recently that was that was kind of like oh the uh, well no, never mind I can't remember but that's a good that's a good reference that's a good horror reference but Dash Hammett I mean we talked about how um, he uses those clues and how his character and you it's not yeah. almost not until you go back and look at it later and you're like oh shit I see that yeah you know, he the- he knew what yeah, one of the things I love about Dash Hammett is. Uh, is is reading through uh, again on a second reading and trying to figure out when Sam Spade knows what he knows. Yeah, you know, or, or when his his main characters really know what they know. Yeah, um, because you can tell, you know, sometimes like they are they're they're fishing, you know, for yeah. information, but you're not told they're fishing. You right. know, you you are left as the reader to interpret these events and come up with kind of your own. Uh, answer your own explanation and I think that's what makes so many of his books just super compelling to read right um, is is that you know you're kind of living in this moment observing this moment in mimetic fashion mm-hmm. and kind of having to make up you know your own interpretation of those events try to figure out from the the, the, the dialogue and then what you you do get diegetically kind of later on you know, um, how this was was kind of taken or interpreted, right? Um, Irma Broadbear uh, is also the that book she uh, wrote Louisiana that I read earlier this year. That's yeah, a great I... mimetic book. But I was thinking as you were telling me that, I, it just kind of clicked in my head that we've actually met and have read a couple of other authors that do if. They don't lean all the way towards mimetic. They have a really good balance of the mimetic with uh-huh. diegesis. Yeah. And uh, Laurel Hightower's Crossroads. I, I think thought, Crossroads has a lot of mimesis. Yeah. Um, but she does have some in, parts in where really she uses that way. diegetic yep, kind of. sure. But she, she uses it sparsely. And another one was Katriana Ward. I thought Katriana Ward oh, did a good yeah, job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
I, um, when I was thinking about this discussion, you know, my mind uh, kind of drifted to, to Omakatsu uh-huh. um, because I think she uses diegetic. Sorry, Alma, we're going to keep bringing you up. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> she's she's like, if, if not my favorite writer, she's, you know, definitely my top And five. by the way, folks, when you heard that podcast of our interview and she asked me for the notes, these are the notes that I gave her. Like, this is the stuff <laughs> Right, yeah, I, yeah. So she this gets the stuff so, you kind of handed over. Yeah, I mean, she, she does a, a really great blend of, mm-hmm. of, like, knowing when she needs to punctuate something with with uh, you know diegetic language and knowing when she needs to introduce you know something a lot more mimetic so uh, her scenes work really well on an emotional level um, because she's weaving in you know some of that heavy uh, mimesis and then um, you know kind of broadens out the the scope a little bit to, to kind of reiterate um, the kind of human element through her uh, diegetic narrative so um, yeah I mean clearly I think that uh, there are a lot of writers who blend you know mm-hmm. these these two elements to really strong effect and that's the reason why I ask you know when does mimesis, um, you know, when should we we really put more emphasis on mimesis when we're writing, and when is it okay for us to pull back out and and use that diegetic language um, to to keep the story moving, or you know, to to fill your reader into some of perhaps the background information that they need to know about you know a scene and why that scene has you know any kind of emotional weight or you know something like that. I feel like there's not a a clear-cut, solid answer. Like, I can't say, you know, here is, you know, this is a fill-in-the-blank kind of template for writing a novel. Here is <laughs> use some mimesis. Here is use some diegesis. You know, <laughs> I don't think it's that. I, I think we should strive for as much as possible uh-huh. um, the mimetic. But right. I think that the diegetic should be peppered in. And yeah. that maybe isn't even something done on, it's probably definitely not done on the first draft. It's something right, that right. we do on rewrite. Right. Where it's like, do we need this information? Yes, but how can I condense it so that it really mm-hmm. plays the part? Mm-hmm. Or or I've got a, a particularly paced scene um, that I need yeah. to affect the pacing. Yeah, or, um, or maybe, you know... Or even suspense. Or, or, should we see more of this character interaction? I mean, yeah. one of the things that I, I really see a lot of um, and and I think this is true of of like romance, mm-hmm. um, especially the some of the indie side of romance. And I don't mean to cast any aspersion on on indie romance whatsoever. Right. Uh, it's like super popular right now, and I know that there are a lot of extraordinarily talented, um, uh, you know, craftspersons working in romance. But I do think that I've I've also seen quite a bit of um, you know on the indie side of things some writers who just don't put in the mimetic work. And yeah. and as a result, their characters are just really flat and uninteresting. Yeah. There are a lot of character dynamics that it's kind of like, well, why does this even work? You know, why do these two characters even care for each other? Because we're just told that they, they mm-hmm. work together. You know, we're just told, you know, that they like each other. We're never really shown any of the character interactions that to us would mean that, you know, oh, well, now I understand why these two like each other. You know, yeah. it, there's nothing there to really engender the feeling of like, oh, I really want to ship them together, you know? You know what? To do this, it's hard. It's very difficult. It's, oh, You have undoubtedly. to know what you're doing. Yeah. And there are plenty of authors, authors who are getting published by traditional publishing, uh, publishers yeah. that are not doing the work. Tom and Clancy. 
Yeah, Tom is he still around? Is he I, in his you service? know what? I have I honestly have no idea. Don't sue us, Tom. Why would Tom Clancy sue us? Because we really hurt his sales of Red uh, Hunt for Red October, uh, didn't we? Yeah, I know. Sorry, Tom. I mean, it's an interesting book. It's an interesting movie. I'm not saying um, don't read Tom Clancy. I'm just yeah, saying. Yeah, read Tom Clancy you know? if you want. But... <laughs> I'm just saying, like, this is an example, you know, of a guy but who's these are, uh, these are things that we not can doing use the same stuff. concretely to point out this is why this works. This is why right. this is considered, right. you know, good literature. This right. is why this isn't. Right. And there and are... I, yeah. I, I and mean, I, I'm going to mention... I want to mention a, a name really quickly that I know um, Trevor might push back because I know we've refused to talk about him for a long time, but I'm going to mention Stephen King. I think Stephen King has a good blend of both. He knows how to present the mimetic, and he knows how to, when to pull back and dance into the diegetic. Right, Um, yeah. He knows how to balance that, and he knows how to put that work in. And there's, you know, I mean, it's it's not happenstance that he does this stuff. I mean, I'm listening, and I'm re-listening to Salem's Lot right now, and I just finished the marathon that was it that took me like a month and a half to, <laughs> to 70 listen. hours or whatever. And I found legit points where he has done like a masterclass in some craft. Of oh, writing. there's no doubt. I think Stephen King has a, a great handle on a lot of his craft. And I will say uh, this to my, 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 you know, dislike for talking about Stephen King books too much um, is, is just I think that there are some other things that he doesn't necessarily handle yeah. as well. And, you know, that's a discussion for an entirely different time. Yeah. But I do think that if you want, you know, to look at like what works about character interactions or what mm-hmm. works, you know, about uh, the, the, this this conversation about diegesis and, and mimesis. Yeah. Look at his work because, yeah. you know, he does a lot of the character work and the character building. You know, when we talk about like, well, how did a character get to this point? Yeah. Right. There's a lot of of like, well, you know, look at the dialogue of these characters as they talk to each other. Maybe the dialogue is stilted in the way that Stephen King writes dialogue because he has some, you know, idiosyncrasies of his own style. Um, But but if you really want to understand, you know, the way that a character is feeling and that sort of thing. Just just look at what King is kind of representing from that character's point of view, you know, their perspective, the way that they argue with one another, you know, in a scene. I, I feel like mm-hmm. all of those character interactions really tell us a lot more about the characters than if you were to just say, like, and the, this character feels this way. Right. And he doesn't just do this for the main characters. He does the or right. the protagonists. He right, does right. this for the antagonists, too. And when he does yeah. it for the antagonists... One for the the main character or the protagonist, it, it makes us kind of in, it endears us to them, yeah. Because we see this as a full person, but when he does it for the antagonist, um, and I'm not talking about the monster antagonist. Usually in a right, Stephen right, right. King book, you've got the monster, and then you have a human antagonist yeah. that works along with them. And when he attaches this to the human antagonist, yeah, you as horrible as this person is, you can actually kind of trace the lineage of how they got yeah. like that. And it's like I, I, I feel like it, I hate to say I understand, but I kind of understand. You yeah, know, it doesn't mean you you root for them. But right, right. He, I, I feel like there's an interesting uh, another interesting book from him is is the Long Walk, mm-hmm. um, where I feel I feel like you know if you really want to get into that that idea of like mimesis and and what a character is, yeah, you know, kind of going through you know from from that perspective, like the Long Walk has a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, 
narrative structure, though, is mimesis and diegesis are kind of the starting point, and they're very important mm-hmm. to understand, so I'm glad we spent quite a bit of time talking yeah. about them today. But it's kind of the starting point. So there are some other things you need to think about when you think about narrative structure. And yeah. One is, and Trevor and I were just talking about this, so yeah. story versus plot. And um, I'm not saying, like, story-driven or character-driven and plot-driven. That's not what I'm talking mm-hmm, about. I'm mm-hmm, talking mm-hmm. about... And this definition, and most of my stuff comes from, like, published works on craft. Uh, right, so right, right. I think through this whole series, I'm going to reference, yeah. like, James Wood, um, his his book, the yeah. How Fiction Works. Yeah. And I'm going to reference Janet Burroway, um, who's yeah. a big, big deal in, like, the craft circles. Right. Um, so Burroway and a few others define story as kind of everything that happens A to Z within the universe of this book. Uh-huh, right, right. right. The, the structure yeah. right, of, uh, of uh, telling the story, sure. If you were going to list out all the events and everything that happens. This right, is, right, this and is the, a, the order of events, yeah. The plot is how those events are arranged to draw mm-hmm. out the most emotional impact. Yeah, yeah, and we were t- we were discussing these terms uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, I, in my limited experience in, you know, writing courses, I, I thought I remembered it uh, reverse, you know, like the, the plot is uh, the plot is the the sequence of events, right? The, like yeah. the things that that have to happen, you know, for for the story's uh, outcome. Whereas yeah. the story is the uh, the emotional, you know, journey, the yeah. the emotional arc. Um, I, I I I'm again, I'm not sure that it, I, I'm sure there are some, you know, of these creative writers who. And I think um, actually, I think you're kind of right. use those terms, yeah. you know, like like in reverse. I think the the point of the exercise, though, is to yeah. be thinking about when you structure a story, right? Mm-hmm. The, you know, there the, a story has structure, right? Right. Um, but but then there there also needs to be kind of like an emotional structure too yeah. to what you write. And, and so whichever ter- term you're using, you know, to describe the events of this narrative and and then on top of that you know the kind of emotional journey yeah. that we as readers should go on and and eventually you know land with um, whatever your term is if one's story or plot you know whatever it, but you need to be you know kind of figuring out um how are you you know how are you telling the story right. what's the order or the sequence of this narrative as it comes about, um, but also be thinking about, you know, what is the the kind of narrative or, or uh, emotional arc, you know, that, that yeah. we as readers should go through alongside our characters and, you know, kind of come out the other side with. Right. And... I hate to man. I hate to bring him back up again, but that book "It" by Stephen King. I, you know, I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't going to go to it, um, but I was going to go to uh, uh, Pet Cemetery. Yeah, you Pet know, because I think Pet Cemetery is a, a great example of how a book, you know, can have both story and plot. You, you yeah. know, whichever you, we want to to call it. Yeah. Um, because it, you know, that 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 story is is ultimately about. Um, uh, uh, a, a father and his grief, right? And, and like the, the the kind of um, danger of not dealing with that grief <laughs> yeah. very well, you know? Um, and so when we talk about the sequence of narrative events, right, um, there's, there's a very clear structure of events, right? One thing leads into another thing. But each of those events is serving the emotional plot, you know, the emotional right. arc 
of this story. It, it's serving to show us how this grief deepens to yeah. a, a point that can no longer be handled. Right? It, right. it becomes an all-consuming grief um, for you know for this this poor protagonist. So here's here's the way to think about this. Unless you're writing a what was it called like a Roman Romans building? Um, uh, the, oh, uh, yeah. the the um, you know what I'm talking buildings about? Roman. Oh yeah, buildings Roman. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're writing yeah. a, a coming <laughs> of age tale. Right. I was right. born. My young term, to, uh, my young uh, <laughs> voice could not pronounce Philip, so I pronounced Pip. I mean, unless you're some fucking Charles Dickens over here. Here's the thing to keep in mind. The story doesn't start on the first page. The story right. has been going on. We're just jumping into the first plot point that we're right, right, the right. first element of the narrative that we are jumping into. Right. Ideally, when your readers come into that story, they are coming in what we call in media res in the uh-huh. middle of yeah in the middle of things in the middle of things so there is a whole belief that the story has existed before the first page is even right. opened these people are people before you meet them yeah right and we follow them along this journey for a certain amount of time yeah and then the book closes but that doesn't mean their story is over they're just moving on to yeah you know yeah 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 to, to th- so one of my fa- <laughs> one of my favorite examples of this uh, is actually Don Quixote Part Two. Part, part Two, yeah. Because I mean, okay, I'm I'm he's I'm going to get weird here. I'm going to get. He's talking Don Quixote in that Spanish literature, and I Part <laughs> Two, which part, is French. Part <laughs> de. Um, so, like Don Quixote was was written in two parts, right? It's yep. kind of conceived of as one whole book, kind of like Lord of the Rings was <laughs> is conceived of as one whole book, even though you know it was kind of chopped up into to three different books for sales or whatever. Yep. Um, well, Don Quixote was actually composed in two very separate times, right? Yep. Uh, Don Quixote Part One um, was uh, uh, Cervantes uh, sat down and wrote this book that was supposed to be kind of a send up of a lot of the different literary genres genres at the time. And I I get the feeling, I know some scholars are going to disagree with me, but I get the feeling that he never really intended for there to be a part two. Um, He kind of concluded part one and part of the joke was like, tee hee hee, you'll get a part two, just like so many of these other sagas. And then there was never going to be a part two. Um, Because he went on to write a bunch of these exemplary novels in between. Like the Princess Bride. (laughs) All right. He jokes at the end of it. Yeah, like he jokes. He jokes. There's a part two. <laughs> there's there's no part two. Exactly. <laughs> so he, he wrote a bunch of um, these exemplary novels in between the time when he finished uh, Quixote Part One and Quixote Part Two, and in the intervening time, someone else came in and wrote Part Two of Quixote, <laughs> and he was pissed about it, and so he, cre- he you know he like rushed and, and he wrote the part two and and then we get this part two which is totally dramatically different from part one um but but i love uh part two because there's you know there's uh this this idea that you know someone else has has told the tale of of don quixote and don quixote and sancho panza are like fighting (laughs) they're they're really angry because they're like look at this look at this story that they published about this you know there's none of this is real and and we kind of kick off the adventure you know, yeah. with with this this uh, this weird claim. I mean, Mark Twain must have pulled that straight out of that when he did like Huck Finn, and he's like, this guy <laughs> named Twain, like Samuel Clemens, wrote this book about me, <laughs> and it's not. I'm going to tell you the real story, <laughs> right? This yeah. is Huck telling us like the Tom Sawyer shit is just false. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he made that shit up. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, 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 I but you I know. thought it was something like the publisher came to to Don or to Cervantes and and was like, "Wow, we really did with good with part one. We need a part two. <laughs> well, I mean, there was a fan demand, right? <laughs> but but I think that Cervantes was just interested in other stuff. I mean, a lot of what he did was trying to push. He was trying to push the genres of his day forward. Yeah. And he was really sick of a lot of like the, the books of chivalry. Right. <laughs> and so he, he, he intended Don Quixote as, as like, I'm going to put the nail in the coffin, you know, to this genre. Um, and, and, uh, to his surprise, it was a, a huge success. It was, you know, the, the thing that he's most known for, not the <laughs> exemplary novels, right. Which he wrote, um, that were supposed to be like, here's, you know, here's new narrative structures I'm giving you, you know, like I'm going to give you these highly complicated framing devices. You know, we're going to we're going to look at, at these alternate, um, you know, kind of these alternate uh, uh, modes of of uh, narrative. And, and everybody else was like, yeah, cool. But uh, could you give us a Don Quixote part two? I really want to know what happens to that guy. Um yeah, it's it's kind of fun. But what about the windmills? Yeah. Did they survive? <laughs> right, right, right. It's, it's funny that everybody remembers the windmills, yeah. which are good. I mean, that's a great sequence, but there's also so much other shit that happens in, in Don Quixote that I know, is yeah, yeah. absolutely like hilarious. I always remember you know it because I, I think of that image of like Trump when he was president. And he was like <laughs> leaning, and he's talking about like windmills causing cancer, and I'm like... <laughs> This, like, this we just, just elected Quixote Don Quixote president. You know, I, I actually <laughs> wish that we had voted Don Quixote as president because he actually was a halfway decent dude. You know, like 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 at, at the very least, he he like was trying. Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> it was everybody else. It, the, really, the the greatest tragedy I think of Don Quixote is that everybody else is the asshole. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Don Quixote is wrong. Don't me get, get me wrong. Like <laughs> like he definitely commits his fair share of blunders. Uh, but but a lot of that comes from just people being assholes to him. Yeah. So the I have another couple of smart words instead of so instead of like show versus tell we have mimesis and diegesis. Yeah yeah yeah. So, how about analepsis and prolepsis? Um, prolepsis is definitely not what happens uh, to my bottom after uh, after <laughs> Chinese food, right? <laughs> that's a, uh, that's a bad that's a that's an that's anal a... prolapse joke <laughs> for the proctologists in our audience. For me, it'd be like Indian food. I think. In, like, like the curry, <laughs> just whatever the curry just shoots yeah, right just whatever through. shoots through you yeah yeah whatever um, you're not your 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 gut biome is just not ready for instead of saying i have several flashbacks in my story say i use the i use analypsis a lot to <laughs> <Are you> explore <laughs> the background of my character you're gonna you're gonna run into a lot of weird <laughs> i use prolepsis a lot in my stories <laughs> i use prolepsis. prolepsis is less Whoa. used it's a flash forward right a flash forward so a flashback is analepsis yep. and a uh, prolepsis is a flash forward <laughs> yeah Anal, it, it seems it, se- it seems like right yeah it, se- it seems like a, a a little backwards there <laughs> uh so yeah so then we have like summary and scene and the uh-huh. difference in a summary and scene, uh, both are used very, very heavily. The The old adage is that you cannot write an entire story with a summary. A summary captures mm-hmm. the whole host or habitual events over a short period of t- – mm-hmm. over a long period mm-hmm. of time in a short space. It's mm-hmm. usually not – in the scene, we don't have placement. So here's it. We're kind of stepping back and looking at. Yeah, here's a here's a question. 
Uh, what's the difference between a summary and a synopsis? Aha. Well, a synopsis is something that you use when you're reaching out to publishers. A summary <laughs> is is also something you can use, but within the, the narrative craft of the book, a mm-hmm. summary would be like instead of describing for us all 90 days of summer that this girl goes down to the pond and like picks flowers, uh-huh, uh-huh. we say she spent her summer down at the pond picking flowers. Right. Okay. Bam. We yeah. just covered three months yeah, and we're moving it, on. We, we, yeah. Yeah. We don't need every single action. Right. Yeah. A scene is set. We don't need re- to know how many times your dude goes to the bathroom. Right. Uh, a scene, however, is set in real time. It's, it's right. placed okay. right yeah. in real time. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's it's set right there. It's it's it's, it's, it's kind of where we widen out the lens a little bit yeah. to, uh, to to like really take stock of yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Summary would be they met every Wednesday and went to the studio to record their podcast. A scene would be describing yeah, us kind in of, the, the slow booth. It down a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So that's uh, that's another. Uh, uh, different or another kind of a uh, couple of vocabulary. Sure. Blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> blah, 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 blah. That's yada, yada, yada. Are you, are you, <laughs> are you the teacher from, from Charlie Brown? I, I want to be Ben Stein. <laughs> Bueller. Bueller. Is so flat monotone. The, what kind of economics was that? Voodoo economics. <laughs> Wait, did you say Ben Stiller? Ben Stein. Ben, ben Stein. Ben Stein. Yeah, he's the guy from. He's the guy from Ben Stiller. I don't know. Ben Stiller. I mean, they're both kind of comedians. Yeah. Ben Stein. Ben Stein. Had no, I know who Ben Stein yeah, is. Yeah. I, I get him confused with Orville Redenbacher for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> A couple of old monologue guys. <laughs> Why don't we just throw in Wilford Brimley in there, too, and just really confuse them. And, and, of course, millennials and Gen Zs, like younger millennials and Gen Zs are like, we got to type up his name in Google. What the fuck are they talking about now? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm a millennial. I'm going to go ask Jeeves about this. Get on the AOL. Oh my God! Got the AOL disc to download. That's a real. <laughs> that's a real analepsis there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I felt it. <laughs> there you go. That was a kick in my analepsis. Let me tell you. <laughs> uh, time signature. Time signature is a cool idea. It's yeah. you probably don't even <laughs> notice this, but it's when they mix habitual time and a mo- like a frozen moment in time. So I mm. think the the example I have here is. Um, Someone yawning as a street sweeper makes its weekly pass down the road. Oh, right. So yeah. So this, we kind of get this, the, the, the idea of multiple things happening at once. Right. Yeah. It's this yeah. mix of dynamic detail and habitual time. Kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a cool effect. It's working. It's letting the character work or the narrator work as like a camera for the, the Yeah, street. yeah. We kind of catch a whole bunch at once. Yeah. And that's, there's more of that that I'm going to go into again when we talk about character and stuff like that. So that'll be its own little, little thing. And then finally. Finally, um, you know, the backstory is anything that, that can relate to, sure. know, that we need information for to, yeah. to, to kind of understand. Yeah, we, but sometimes we need that info in order to, to make sense of the current events and the weight of current events. Yeah, right? truly mimetic um, narration will not provide a lot of back a lot of backstory. Yeah. Just like, um, and when I said earlier that you cannot write, and the old, the old adage is that you cannot write an entire story in summary. Um I would argue that H.P. Lovecraft did his damnedest to write entire <laughs> fucking stories in summary. 
the only dialogue, there's like almost no dialogue. Yeah, there's very little dialogue and, uh, in in H.P. Lovecraft's story. I do like the way the stories are framed. I like the way he, he structures oh, sure, them. Yeah. But if we're being honest, I mean, these aren't great yeah. stories because he's heavily diegetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And heavily... Um, he's, that he's, was very much his style. Summary. Yeah, yeah. yeah, very much his style. And there's something to say for it. I think it works in some of the more horrific parts, and we could probably study up close what Lovecraft did mm-hmm. in those horrific parts and maybe if we mirrored that in our horrific moments in our yeah. our story which I think is another thing King does really well yeah um, that's when you see a lot of that diegetic is, is when you're you're really kind of coming at that suspenseful or that horrific moment and you're getting it just kind of thrust at you and there's a strong kind of connection to um, to sense memory and a strong like kind of experience Exposure to the senses, like everything tingling, um, mm. you're getting a high, like uh, just very indoctrinated kind of feeling into into mm-hmm. the, the overwhelming oppressive atmosphere and mood, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's what Lovecraft does well. It's just that's also the only thing he does. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> There's not a, a whole lot of dynamic that, that you know, and, kind and, of storytelling and overtly racist like ideology. Oh yeah, he's very good at racism <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, he's good at racism. Maybe the king of racism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's it. That's that's kind of my talk on narrative structure. I know it doesn't seem like a lot, but it's actually. I, but you know what? There's a lot. There is a lot to unpack there, and I, I think that there's. Uh, you know, this is something that seems invisible. I yeah. think to a lot of people, and and part of the language of storytelling, I think, um, becomes intuitive for a lot of people who read. A lot. Yeah. You know, you probably understand a lot more of this language without maybe having the vocabulary for it. Right. But you understand the beats. You understand the the kind of, um, you know, kind of narrative structure, if you will, of the stuff that you read. What to expect as yeah. you're reading um, because it's coded into everything you read. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. The really good stuff, um, I think, you know, it doesn't necessarily draw attention to how good it really is. But I think the really good stuff, um, uh, on the contrary, makes a lot of this seem invisible or at least intuitive to the story that you're reading. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What interests me about, say, like, say, um, Cena Palaio's Children of Chicago. Sure. Um, she throws in there some some flashbacks to the past, and they, mm-hmm. yeah. When you see what's going on, it's more like it's sprinkled into this, mm-hmm. so that you can. Mm-hmm. You, you, it's not a lot of it. I think there's like yeah. a, a scene where she meets her her future ex husband, mm-hmm. and then there's a scene back when her dad was alive, but he was sick, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think that's about it. And yeah. and she does that to kind of give us that quick backstory. Um, yeah, she just kind of fill she, out the characters. Yeah, her her her. Her characters kind of bleed back and forth through time uh, yeah. a little bit, it, at least in, in terms of how the story is told. Well, and that's an interesting – because she's, she's covering basically a modern retelling of a fairy tale, and that's yeah. kind of what fairy tales are. They're like timeless. They're, mm-hmm, we talked about mm-hmm. this with the Frankenstein movies, like yeah. how timeless they are, and they have that fairy tale kind of feel. Like yeah. you don't know exactly yeah. when and where it's taking place. Uh-huh. And so she accomplishes that by pushing her characters through time, and you're right. like – Yeah, they'll, they'll – they'll, 
they'll enter a room and all of a sudden they're they're maybe they're in the same room right but but all of a sudden they've shifted back in time yeah um into memory or something like that and then we're pulled back to the present you know by by the time that that kind of sense memory is over and what's kind of fun about that is instead of like being all diegetic about that she's Mm -hmm. she's very mimetic like it's very mimetic you've got to figure out where you're at yeah yeah and i I don't mind uh gabino iglesias did he at least offered up some um some chapter breaks i think in between yeah some of his kind of shifts in time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but and but both of them do something that I think is really well, and that is, you don't have a lot of flashback. Like mm. You don't like your flashbacks need to be relatively brief, and they mm-hmm. need to be pretty well yeah out of the way. They, they should serve your character moment, yeah. right? And and yeah. uh, you know, overindulging I think is uh, a real danger because then you lose you lose the thread. Right, you lose the track or track of what uh, you're you're trying to establish in that scene, you right. know, in that that little sequence. And so, somebody might who might be familiar with Katrina Ward's uh, Sundial or Stephen King's mm-hmm, It mm-hmm. might say, "Well, aren't those like half flashback?" And it's like, no, the story is t- unfolding on two different fronts, right? Two different time periods. Right. It's taking place in the past, and we're learning about what's happening in the past, but it's also unfolding in the present. Right. And it's that divergence or that convergence of, right, of right, right. events mm-hmm. um, that are mirrored against each other that make both of those books work really right. well as as these kind of plot-structured, you know, uh, parallel past and present kind yeah. of things happening. And I think Katrina Ward and Stephen King do a great job yeah. on that. I think Almakatsu does some of that too. Um, yeah. With uh, with the deep, she right? did with the deep. Yeah, yeah it, right. we've got these kind of alternating uh, uh, chapters, if you will, of you know the same character um, on the Titanic and then on the the. Uh, yes, that's Britannica. Right. I I'm sorry. I, forgot, I apologize for forgetting about that. Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm, I mean, she. So you know, she's she's kind of playing with the, the same kind of thematic statements, just you know, like six years apart. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that you know, that's what we get into when we're talking about story and plot and mimesis and diegesis. This, mm-hmm. These are kind of all good examples of that, and these are yeah. things that. As the writer, you need to to be looking at. You want to yeah. maybe not on the first draft. The first draft, I think, is just to get the story on the paper. Get the story out, right? Yeah. But then look at the structure of the story you've written, yeah, and, and start thinking about you know what does this part need, you know, yeah. to to really bring uh, a brighter focus, you know, to to the ideas that I'm trying to explore or represent in this this sequence in this passage, right? Yeah. Um, and that's it. That's that's for, hey, at least for all right. and diegesis. I think that's a lot to unpack, though. I yeah, it's a lot we've given. I think what I'm going to start doing, what I'm going to make sure I did for the first episode. Ooh, this should be in, probably not recorded, but whatever. I'm going to make. <laughs> I am going to at the on the description of each episode. I'm going to put the key terms and their definitions. Um, oh, so, interesting. So okay. people can look it up and and kind of think about it and kind of if you want to go through like the books you're reading right now or the books maybe you look to read or whatever and just see if you can't yeah maybe there's a book that you really like uh and you want to kind of explore a little bit more of what's happening there you know what they're doing uh and we've listed i mean we've listed a lot of different genres in this discussion oh yeah definitely. and that's what i I want to keep doing throughout the series is list a lot of different genres because if you're like well i'm not a horror person so i can't you know well i can't it's like you don't have to even more than that i I feel like okay so you want to be a good horror writer you know like look at how these other genres are handling the same ideas you know the the same stuff and steal (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, just, just you know, steal ideas everywhere. I like like make it your own. You know, find something that you like, or or maybe a technique that uh, you found was really interesting, and play with it. You know, build your skill with um, some of those ideas. I, I, I feel like you know what I, is your your fiction, but a, a space to to build your craft out. I read some decent horror. I read some horror when I was going through my grad graduate work. Sure. I read a lot of stuff that wasn't horror. That was just other stuff. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I feel like, as again, I, me as a reader, I have my preferences. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I mean, I read Haruki Murakami. I read sure, um, yeah. Chekhov. I read... Yeah. Uh, oh shit, man! I've read I've read a bunch of uh, just a bunch. I, but yeah, I I but I feel like you know if you really if you really do want to build your craft, if you really do, I I definitely feel like uh, read yeah. you know read stuff uh, and 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 read a lot of stuff. Yeah, you know, and, look at what works and what doesn't and work. Read and read your genre, but read outside of your genre too. Yeah, like, like if you yeah, look yeah. at the if you look at the reading list Stephen King provides on the back of his his book on writing. Mm-hmm. Most of those books are not horror. They are just right. your standard. It's yeah. literary stuff. And he's reading yeah. this and absorbing it and putting it into genre. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and too, I think, you know, like understand what each of these genres does. Mm-hmm. You know, what what some of the craft calling cards of these genres are. Conventions. And, and look into them. You know, if you, yeah, right. The conventions <laughs> here to bring it back. You know, think about... Um, you know, are are you writing characters? You really need to to understand character dynamics more. Read some, read romance. Yep. Right. Like like really dig into that romance. Um, if you're trying to figure out how do I build suspense, how do I how do I create something that is going to help turn pages? Read horror. Read mystery. Yep. Read thrillers. Right. Like those are all super important in the the maintenance of. Hey, there uh, were some great. Uh, uh, suspenseful moments and some great comedy and some great kind of uh, just all sorts of emotion actually in Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or in Jonathan Lethem's um, Motherless Brooklyn. Yeah, I mean just I just mean, read all over the place. Yeah, these you, are you know, yeah, and and see what these books are doing and and see if there's something that you might be able to take away from it. Yeah. So next week. I think we are going to discuss character and narration. And if you guys think the mm. only vocab mm. is going to be character, narration, first and second and third person, You're I wrong. got news for you. You're wrong. <laughs> There's more. This is where I earn my graduate pay. <laughs> my pay as a graduate <laughs> professor. This is it. This is where <laughs> I feel like this is the uh, the part of the information or, or infomercial where we're like, hey, there's more. But <laughs> don't, don't, don't. This is, yeah. Don't wait now. (laughs) There's more. So thank you, everyone, for for listening to this series. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, just we're going to keep going with it. So we'll see you next time. (laughs) 